host, Lauren Coletti. Thank you for joining me today. I'm coming at you from New York. It is Monday, February 1st. Happy first of the month. Thank God January is over and we're having a winter storm right now and it is kind of forcing everyone I think to stay inside, relax, hopefully recharge, take care of anything you need to take care of. For me personally, I hate the snow. I don't think anyone who has to shovel 10 to 20 inches of snow really enjoys the snow. Uh, It seems to be that people that love the snow generally don't have to shovel it or drive in it. (laughs) So I am not in that camp. I live with my mom who is in her mid-60s and it's between the both of us. So I have to shovel. So I definitely don't enjoy the snow personally. But I hope for anyone that does, you're having a grand old time and everyone's staying nice and cozy and warm. And I hope everyone had a great weekend. I just wanted to do a little recap. My weekend was particularly eventful. Uh, Friday, I got my hair did and I went to a paint night with my boyfriend and his family. And then Saturday, uh, we went to a health club for a detox service and Sunday we went to brunch. So it was pretty fun. And I have been experiencing some negative side effects due to my IUD. If you know, I got a copper IUD, the Paragard, in the beginning of January. And not to give TMI, although this podcast is all about too much information, literally no filter, anything goes. Um, I got my first period with my IUD, and it has been extremely unpleasant, very painful, very bloody, and just not feeling great. So I would love to know anyone's experience with their IUD. Um, If I have my future periods like this, I really can't do this for another 12 years. So I'm considering getting it taken out, but please let me know your experience because I would love to know if it gets better, if it normalizes, if your cramps continually got worse, if your periods continually got heavier. I feel as a female, We need to be empowered in our sexual health decisions so that we can make the best choice for us. And what's the right decision for you may differ from the next person. So it's good to explore all of our options, but for now, I'm very grateful that I am protected against unwanted pregnancies. However, there's consequences with every decision we make. So we know that. So now that it is February, let's get into today's episode. I wanted to kind of talk a lot about relationships this month because of Valentine's Day. I was teetering back and forth between different topics for today's show. I don't know when I will launch this episode, but as many of you know, I'm returning back to work next week, so I'm trying for you guys. I want to put out as much content and new episodes as I can before I return back to work and have like zero time on my hands. (laughs) So I hope y'all have been enjoying the last few months episodes and let me know if you really want to hone in on relationships this month. I am in a relationship, a monogamous relationship. However, I don't want to just talk about relationships in the context of being in a relationship because I know a lot of people are single or in complicated situations. So I really wanted to cater to everyone And it wasn't very long ago that I was on that single flow 
dating and just despising the dating apps because let's be real folks how else do you meet people nowadays add on covid to just life in general and it makes dating extremely hard so unless you're in an office and you're not working remote there perhaps could be a few potential candidates where you work but other than that if you're not commuting to school every day if you're working from home As someone in their 20s, I just have found it extremely difficult to go out and meet people. Add on to that, I am a very sensitive, introverted person, so I don't like bars. I don't like clubs. I mean, I don't dislike them, but personally, I can only be in high, like, stimulatory environments with crowds Uh, for so long because I get very claustrophobic and overwhelmed and it's just not enjoyable whatsoever. So as someone that's a homebody and kind of a hermit, it was very hard for me to meet people out on the dating scene. Uh, The dating apps just, I don't know where anyone else lives that's listening. Please give me a shout out and let me know. I'd love to hear from you, but I live in New York and The census is in that New York, it's challenging, but wherever you go, there you are. Everyone thinks that their city is the worst place to meet people, but New York is rough, man. I mean, I cannot wait to get on out of here. So I wanted to talk about today both dating with a mental illness, how to be in a healthy relationship as someone with a mental illness, its impacts on relationships, and loving someone with a mental illness. Because I wish I could have my boyfriend on for this episode because he has been the bomb.com with this. He doesn't have a mental illness that I know of. I wouldn't say I get that vibe from him whatsoever. He's very um, healthy and secure and just very patient with me. And I am so grateful for how compassionate and understanding he has been and so supportive because if you identify as someone with a mental illness, we all know there are so many people in our lives that degrade us, that exploit us, that talk down to us and just make it that much more difficult. So when we can find a support system, people around us that are very supportive and comforting, it makes all the difference. Because I'm sure, as many of you know, if you identify as a mental illness, so many people have been very invalidating and hurtful with their comments or their actions. And I would like to give people the benefit of the doubt and say that they don't mean to be. But I wish everyone that is struggling with something mental health related could have someone as awesome as I do because being in a healthy relationship, especially as someone with a mental illness or in particular for me, someone that has had a, a lot of trauma centered around interpersonal relationships, being in a loving relationship, don't get me wrong, it has its challenges, um, hence my previous podcast, but it is extremely healing. And understanding how to provide support for someone who is suffering from mental illness can be overwhelming and emotionally exhausting. I'm someone that 
we all love people that have a mental illness, right? They, the statistics are in, they say that roughly one in five of us have or will have a mental illness. So even if someone doesn't come straight out and say, I have X, Y, and Z diagnosis, most of us can relate to loving or supporting, trying to support someone who is mentally ill, whether that's a spouse, a family member. So I just wanted to offer some insights uh, into my own journey of navigating the rough waters over the last few years and from what I've observed from my boyfriend, how that has helped me. So the first thing I would suggest is embracing that empathy and validation. We live in a society where empathy is often doled out competitively because we can feel bad for a person as long as their circumstances aren't the worst we've heard, so to speak. So we can appreciate a struggle as long as we didn't easily overcome something similar. In reality, empathy and validation weren't designed to work this way. So there's a difference between empathy or compassion and sympathy. And empathy sounds more like, I don't know how to help you, but I'm sorry you're hurting. And less like, I know you're having a hard time, but it could be worse. I cannot exaggerate enough how hurtful and devastating a comment like this could be. Oh, just look on the bright side. Be positive. Be grateful for what you have. I love my mom to death, but a lot of her trying to support me has sounded like invalidating my experience and saying there's people who have it worse. When we empathize with the people in our lives without needing to hold their circumstances up against ours or anyone else's, we lessen the chance that our loved ones feel alone in their pain and strengthen the chance that they'll be vulnerable enough to reach out to us in their time of need. And validation is extremely important and critical because it's the simple acknowledgement that a person is entitled to their feeling, even if we don't agree that it's the appropriate feeling or have the response that we would have in a similar circumstances. So validation sounds like, I understand you're angry and that must be hard. And allowing our loved ones to see that we acknowledge what they're feeling can give them the freedom to accept that feeling and cope with it better. Another point here is resisting the urge to tell them to do something differently or to try harder. If your daughter, your husband, your sister were having a physical ailment, like an asthma attack, and you tried to say, oh, just try harder at breathing, it would not only be ineffective, but it would just not make any sense. But yet for some reason, when it comes to matters of the brain, like mental illness, we've adapted this sentiment that grit will get us through. And this is really sad because our national suicide rate, at least here in the US, is so much higher than the homicide rate alone. So we have to accept that this is a flawed logic and that our loved one's mind is valuable and vital to controlling their ability to get well. So what do we do when we see someone having a heart attack, an asthma attack? We act fast. We supply them with hopefully aid. We call 911 and we give them the adequate time and treatment in the room to breathe. Mental illness should be treated the same way, taking the steps to help people take care of themselves, giving them the space to feel safe, because physiological and psychological illnesses need to be treated um, the same way in order for wellness to be achieved. 
So I just don't agree with the societal standard that mental illnesses are a personal weakness, something to be ashamed about because it feels like something is flawed or deficient in us. Because if you had diabetes, if you got Uh, I don't know, a disease of your liver, you wouldn't say this is because I suck and I'm flawed and something's wrong with me. So why do we look at mental illness the same way? So if you're loving someone, if you're in a relationship with someone that has mental illness, try to educate yourself on the illness. Learn the symptoms of that person's illness and stop taking them personally. And this could even, if you have a parent that struggles with substance abuse, or for me, my mom doesn't have any, uh, she never went to like mental health treatment, but the symptoms are pretty clear. So each mental illness, like all illnesses, has its own set of symptoms that manifest in the heightened seasons of the struggle. And an important part of being supportive is understanding how these symptoms affect our loved ones. If you have a mental illness yourself, you can relate. For me, when I have my episodes of depression, I um, identify as someone with a mood disorder. I know that these symptoms can make life extraordinarily challenging. So for instance, a person with an anxiety disorder may have difficulty concentrating, feeling restless, and this could lead to being easily irritable and aggravated. As someone that has post-traumatic stress disorder, I have a difficult time staying in the present, um, having negative changes in my current belief system, feeling confused. Um, memory loss, flashbacks. It's really interesting because Nick and I were talking the other day about, I don't remember, something that was very vulnerable. And I started feeling triggered and I had a flashback of this horrific memory of where I was um, sexually abused by my ex-boyfriend. And in that moment, I felt so frustrated because I was like, you know, I can't even enjoy this moment here with my amazing loving boyfriend because these troubling memories of my ex keep popping up. So it was hard, but I told him, I'm feeling triggered. Can I share something with you? And I told him about that experience. And it was very, um, it was hard, but it was very touching. And it brought us a lot closer because in that moment, he gave me the support and the comfort and the sympathy and validation that I needed and just held me. So no matter the symptom, um, It's as uncontrollable as sweating and shaking during the flu or if we're having insulin shock. But when we decide to view these things as choices and take offense, that can lead to further feelings of isolation for our loved ones who are likely feeling guilt and embarrassment. This is very harmful. So in that moment, if Nick would have said to me, Lauren, I don't want you to talk about your ex-boyfriend and took it personally, um, that would have been very harmful and would have likely impacted my ability to be vulnerable and share with him in the future. So just as a roadmap doesn't indicate each tree along the way, neither can a diagnosis tell of every person's individual nuances. So taking oneself out of the dark and eliminating the fear of the unknown is a better way to help someone on their journey forward. I think it can be very hard and lonely to the person on the receiving end of these symptoms, uh, it can feel like a personal attack and those feelings can understandably get in the way of the relationship because of that. Um, so it's just as important for family members, spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends to have a support network 
as it is for those struggling with mental illness. So I have to, as someone with a mental illness, put myself in Nick's shoes and see how trying it could be for him. Moments where I'm pulling away, moments where I'm feeling irritated and aggravated and want to just lash out or sulk in my negative emotions and let my feelings get the best of me. I could really try to empathize with Nick and see how hard it must be for him. So just as it is important for me to be getting therapy and have a support system, it's really important for Nick to have that as well because it's on both ends. Now, I don't believe in using mental illness as an excuse to be rude. Um, as someone that worked in the social services field with individuals with mental illness, something I would hear from my coworkers or see time and time again is people blaming their aggressiveness or their anger or just being very disrespectful on mental illness saying, oh, I can't help it, it's my mental illness. I don't subscribe to this because this makes it seem like you have no control over your life whatsoever. And I don't believe that as for me personally, I don't believe I'm a victim of my mental illness. Yes, I might have been a victim in the past, but you can either use your experiences and your life struggles to make you bitter or make you better. That's I didn't make that up. That's just a rephrasing of a common line. But of course, there are times when we feel out of control, helpless, powerless. We are entitled to these feelings, but to really grow, and I know many people that listen to this show are spiritual and into self-help and self-development, we have to take ownership and accountability and responsibility for our choices moving forward because we can't control what happened to us in the past, but we can choose to reframe and learn from that and use that as a catalyst to move us forward into the best version of ourselves. So let's together research our treatment options for those um, of us who are struggling with mental illness, let go of our timetable. There's no magic time frame for healing um, and mental illnesses ebb and flow over the years. They get better, they get worse, they sort of stagnate. So we have to know that we can encourage people to get outside support, but that alone can't fix it. And we can only do so much if we are loving someone with a mental illness. We can't control their treatment necessarily. We can't control their healing. That is their decision. And we have to remember that people with mental illnesses are not suddenly different people because they are sick. When they're struggling, they aren't monsters. When they get better, they're not new people, but our feelings and our situations can trick us into thinking so. Mental illnesses are illnesses, and sometimes they can change someone's circumstances. They can even change their personalities for a time and their interests and their spirit, but they are the same person that we've always loved. And they need you to see that person in them, even when they can't see themselves clearly. Using person-first language can help us from defining our loved ones by their struggles and can help us stay away, um, stay focused on hope, not stay away from hope, stay always focused on hope. So just know that if you love someone, a mother, a sister, your boyfriend, whomever, and they're struggling, one, it's not personal. Um, my mental illness has 
no, nothing to do with Nick, my boyfriend and my um, circumstance, but we have to also separate our mental health condition sort of from our relationship and work on our mental health condition so that we can be in the healthiest, best relationship. And this is learning to love ourselves better, monitoring our negative self-talk, practicing healthy communication, embracing our independence, having a support plan so that we can thrive in our relationships. And I know that codependency goes hand in hand here because many people that love someone with a mental illness also have a codependent relationship. For me, this has been pretty um, relevant with my own mother. And We have to kind of, for me, I reached a breaking point where I was trying to get my mother to see my point of view, trying to give my mom books about my eating disorder so that she would understand, but she just kept turning away and rejecting it. So for me, I had to learn to not take that personally and know that everyone is on their own path. We cannot force someone to get better. We can only hold our own side up of the end. So yes, mental illness and mental health conditions affects relationships because many people with these conditions feel inadequate. Um, They have either performance anxiety, low self-esteem. For both partners, this can lead to a decreased opportunity for bonding and result in codependent behaviors and a unmet needs. So it is challenging, but through educating ourselves on our loved one's diagnosis, encouraging and being a model for self-care and wellness, uh, knowing when to take a break, being a safe person for them, we can love someone with a mental illness and we can be in a healthy relationship as someone with mental illness or with someone with a mental illness. So I'm going to kind of uh, change, shift gears here and talk about being the person and romantic relationships as someone with a mental illness. So whether you are living with a mental health condition, you may wonder whether or not to talk about it with your significant other. How often do I bring it up? Do I bring it up how long into our dating? And if you're single, you may wonder if having a mental health condition rules out romance for you. So it's important to know that many people with serious mental illnesses have strong, supportive, long-term relationships as long as they have the insight, self-awareness, and they're choosing their partners accordingly. Because trust me, I know dating is hard enough. Dating with a mental health condition makes it that much more challenging because we have all that internalized struggle inside of us that can kind of deter or determine where we are going on our dating path. A good relationship provides valuable social support during difficult times, whereas a bad relationship can worsen your symptoms, particularly in cases of depression. When I was in my abusive relationship, my symptoms went, they skyrocketed. I ended up in the psych um, institute. I was self-harming every day. I was purging every day. So I wanted to just discuss, you know, the right relationship can make all the difference. Because of the stigma and misunderstandings surrounding mental illness, many people are understandably reluctant to tell their partners. Uh, Think here, what you don't know won't hurt you. But if you want a long-term relationship, you and your partner will eventually want to share 
this information, health information, sexual health information, physical health information, and mental health information, because you need this to support each other through your, uh, if you have a crisis. And if you're in a long-term relationship, it's better to disclose this condition um, than concealing it because that's just going to lead to more guilt and I don't know if I want to say lies, but secrecy. So as you begin a new relationship, uh, you don't need to share everything right away, but as you begin to trust the relationship more and as you become more serious and committed, start thinking about this discussion. I believe I told Nick that I had mental health struggles maybe on our second date. Of course, I didn't tell him that I tried to kill myself or I didn't tell him the extent of my abuse or necessarily um, all the details, you know, but I remember I take medication at eight o'clock every night and my alarm went off to take my medication. So I lightheartedly said, oh, I have to take my psych meds and then... um, You know, you could rephrase this any way that suits you, that you're comfortable with. But I believe we have to trust our intuition as to when to reveal this information um, and sort of navigate it by the energy we are receiving from the other person. Because you know yourself best. You know how someone makes you feel. And this will kind of teach you when it's appropriate uh, to bring up these things. And there's a difference between being vulnerable and oversharing, right? If you want to learn more about that, I highly suggest researching or reading Brene's Brown work on the courage of vulnerability. But yes, having a mental health condition can make it more difficult to meet people, especially if you have an avoidant disorder or social anxiety, um, largely because you may not feel like connecting with others when your life seems so unstable. So depending on your condition, you might be dealing with impulse behavior, irregular moods, desire to withdraw, um, or just anxieties in general. So to attract a new romantic partner with a mental health condition, think about what qualities you're looking for in a partner. How can you strengthen these qualities in yourself? How can you find someone who balances you out? Showing your positive qualities to the world will help you attract people who meet your needs. And it can be very frustrating, but try not to get discouraged because you deserve a loving, healthy relationship, whatever your history. And lastly, I just want to touch on sex because it's my podcast and we know we love talking about sex here. So mental illness, especially if you have sexual trauma, can disrupt your sex life in many ways. In particular, the side effects of certain medications may reduce your desire for sex. Um, Your trauma history can impact your ability to get aroused and your ability to, if you're a man, maintain an erection or if you're a woman, achieve orgasm. So if you do experience these side effects, it's important to recognize that they can damage your quality of life and your romantic relationships. So number one, I would start talking about the sexual side effects with your doctor and your partner so that they know to not take it personally. Do not, however, stop taking your medication, Um, (laughs) especially if you have bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, uh, your psychosis or mania will likely worsen um, if this happen. So never just stop taking your medication cold turkey. Um, Take your time to work with your doctor to reduce negative side effects or perhaps ask about switching. I personally liked the medication Wellbutrin. I found that that helped my sex drive rather than decrease it, but 
for me, um, especially as someone that has a menstrual cycle, my sex drive can largely ebb and flow throughout the month. So just keep this in mind. Um, and as you work with your doctor and maybe even try sex therapy. I went to a sex therapist once and found her extremely helpful to work through um, my sexual abuse and talk about how I could have a healthy sexuality moving forward. Don't forget to show affection and love for your partner. And this can be in ways other than sex because by reminding yourself and your partner that neither of you is to blame for your sexual complications, um, know that your setback is temporary. And through communicating and being honest with your partner and creating desire and passion and romance in other ways, for me, I know that this has largely increased my desire to have sex with Nick. It's not so much about the touching or the kissing sometimes, but after we have these very loving, vulnerable conversations, I just want to ravish him and rip his clothes off. Um, so that's something to keep in mind as well. And through building a relationship through healthy touch and healthy physical affection, this can, as a result, lead to an improved sex life. So I hope this episode helped you in some way. Me and Nick are actually going to try to go to couples therapy, I think, next week. Um, so that should be interesting. I'll try to do a episode on that. But I thank you for listening. I hope that this helped you in some way or resonated with you. If you found this episode relatable or helpful, share it. Like, comment, subscribe. I thank you so, so much for listening. I hope you all stay safe and healthy and happy in the snow. Hang in there. I love you so, so much. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a wicked day.